Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you with us today. Exercise may slow brain aging by 10 years for older people. University of Miami. That's just one of about a dozen studies I'll be sharing with you today from all published in peer-reviewed journals, all from respected institutions, but not at all shared by the mainstream media. That's where we're at every day, cutting-edge quality information. But then today starts a one-week special classroom on the air taught by people who are mainstream, regular, all pro-vaccine, pro-orthodox medicine, pro-big pharma, pro-FDA, pro-CDC, pro-Anthony Fauci, pro-everything. And yet they're the ones who are coming forward and challenging different parts of the we're on COVID. It's an interesting situation where the ultimate orthodox is challenging the ultimate orthodox. The difference is one group are clinicians and physicians in the field working with patients, independent science that is honoring objectivity and truth. The other is corporatized and now weaponized science and public health the greatest debacle in world history. We were there at the beginning and taking each piece of the puzzle and showing you the truth. Now look back, go back a year to when I was saying that the death rates had been conflated, they weren't accurate. Now that's been shown to be the case. They simply lumped all the flu cases in with uh, the COVID. That's now been shown true when you have not a single case of the flu in Great Britain. How is it possible where you have 40, 50,000 people dying Suddenly you have no one dying and no one has the flu. That's not humanly possible. Look, any, let's just take any physician, the most conservative-minded physician who plays by the book 100% doesn't step outside the boundaries. If you were told every single person on the planet, according to Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci, must be vaccinated, you would say, well, hold on a second. You can't vaccinate everyone. There's a whole group of people who can't get any vaccines because they have autoimmune conditions and that could trigger a life-threatening autoimmune event, especially those who have situations where they're in nursing homes. So who do we drive the vaccine to? Nursing homes. And then we see deaths, but we deny those deaths. We say it's just coincidental, not causal. Then we have children and babies and infants who do not show any relationship of getting sick or dying from COVID. There's not even statistically significant number, not even one-tenth of one percent, yet we demand that they not go to school and demand they stay home and demand that they get vaccinated now and are testing vaccines. You would say if you were responsible, if you were if you were just a typical physician, you'd say, but that doesn't make any sense. You vaccinate those who you feel will the vaccine will create antibodies that could be protective and will support our innate immune system versus the adaptive immune system. And then you say, but we have people who are dying. They have cancer. They have congestive heart failure. They have dementia. These people have massive amounts of cytokine storms already in their body. Do you want to create another cytokine storm? Makes no sense. You would look for a less invasive therapy like a a drug. Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine some steroids. 
Now, that's what a regular doctor, run-of-the-mill doctor, pro-vaccine doctor, pro-FDA doctor would do. And yet, you don't hear a word from these people, except those who are finally so fed up with the corruption, so fed up with the bad science, so fed up with the narcissistic megalomaniacs, like all of them at the top, Bill Gates in particular, saying, we must speak out. They risk everything speaking out. So this week, you're going to hear from people speaking out. Now, today, you're going to hear from an individual who has a rather remarkable background. In fact, he has one of the most remarkable medical and scientific backgrounds in the world. He is a Dr. McCullough, and he's an undergraduate at Baylor University, medical degrees as an Alpha Omega Alpha graduate, University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, medical residency, University of Washington, Seattle, cardiology fellowship, including services chief fellow at William Beaumont Hospital, master's degree in public health, University of Michigan. But also, he is a consultant cardiologist and vice president of medicine at Baylor University Medical School. He is a principal faculty professor in internal medicine for the Texas A&M University Health Sciences Center. He is an internationally recognized authority on the role of chronic kidney disease as a cardiovascular risk factor with 1,000 publications in peer-reviewed literature, 500 citations in the National Library of Medicine. That is unheard of. His work include the interface between renal disease and cardiovascular illness in Brawlman's Heart Disease Textbook, uh, he received the Simon Nephrology uh, DAC Award from the American College of Cardiology and the International uh, Vincenza Award in Critical Care uh, for his scholarship and research. He's a founder and current president of the Cardiorenal Society of America. I mean, this guy, he publishes New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the Lancet, all the top journals he's published in with an impeccable career. And uh, they invite him to come to the New York Academy of Sciences, give lectures, the National Institute of Health, Food and Drug Administration as a consultant, European Medicine Agency, U.S. Congressional Oversight Panel. That's who he is. So when you hear what he has to say, understand that this is one of the brightest minds in medicine and science on the entire planet. And that's exactly who we have every single day this week. Some of the best and brightest in all of science, all pro-vaccine, all pro-orthodox medicine. So when these people turn around and fight back, they are fierce in their statements, as you will hear him say, you need to hear this. This is not me saying it. It's no one from the alternative field saying it. It's orthodoxy on orthodoxy saying it. So that's what we're going to do today and each day this week, and also with our progressive commentary tomorrow. We are packed up on the archives. I want to thank the 63,000 individuals who just in the last 10 days downloaded the program off the archives. We have a massive new amount of listeners from all over the world, people who care about the truth, not politics. Our archive, we have a new archive number. We had so many people, we had to get a new site. So here's, if you want to get any of the programs, and they're free, 631 359 Nine four seven. Uh, excuse me. Let me start over. Six six three one three five nine nine four six three. 
631-359-9463. And you can listen to this program live by uh, going to 717-734-6955. 717-634-6955. Also today, I will share with you a brand new article that I believe should be shared everywhere. Everywhere. Why? Because Richard Gale, scholar-in-residence, and myself have taken a look at the statistics, and there's enormous discrepancy. I'm talking about a magnitude of discrepancy that could not be by chance or accident. I believe it's intentional. So we have written an article, published today. Read it, download it. It's fully referenced. Can we trust America's COVID vaccine injury statistics? And when you see how many people are dying, according to the European Medicines Agency database of COVID-19 vaccine adverse reactions and injuries versus the United States, so that doesn't make any sense. You bet it doesn't make sense. So we'll go over that today as well. We always start with the latest on health and healing. Exercise in older people is associated with a slower rate of decline in thinking skills that occurs when you age. People reported light to no exercise experience a decline equal to 10 more years of aging as compared to people reported moderate to intense exercise. According to a population-based observational study published in the journal Neurology, the medical journal of the American Academy of Neurology, quote, the number of people over the age of 65 in the United States is on the rise, meaning the public health burden of thinking and memory problems will likely grow. So the more you exercise, the longer your brain is going to be strong and resilient and you keep your memory. So whether it's power walking, running, aerobics, calisthenics, just do it each day. University of Missouri shows the DHA, that's one of the most powerful uh, mega fatty acids we can put into our body, can offset the impact of maternal stress on unborn males. Neurodevelopmental disorders like autism uh, are disproportionately affecting males and are directly linked to early life adversity caused by maternal stress and other factors, which can be impacted by nutrition. But the underlying reasons for these male-specific impacts are not well understood. Researchers at the University of Missouri School of Medicine uh, found that you can really make an impact with DHA, which can guard against the impact of maternal stress on unborn males during early development. So, pregnant women, make sure you're taking, I'm going to suggest 3,000 milligrams divided, 1,500 in the morning, 1,500 in the afternoon, of the omega-3 fatty acids. And DHA is the important part of that equation. Also from Carleton University, as well as the University of um, Colorado State University and Michigan State University, getting out to where you can hear the coyotes howling or the wolves, depending upon where you're at, birds singing, rain falling, natural sounds. It inspires us, connects us to nature. New research by a team of scientists at three universities shows that natural sounds are good for our health. Researchers from Carleton University and the other two, Colorado State, and the National Park Service analyzed studies on the outcomes of listening to natural sounds and found striking human health benefits. The team also found people experienced decreased pain, 
lower stress, improve mood, and enhance cognitive performance. The sounds of water were most effective at improving positive emotions and healthy outcomes, while bird sounds combat stress and annoyance. This was published by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I remember the year was 1988. I was invited to do a special on PBS. And in fact, I did three big specials back to back to back, all different, starting with How to Live Forever. And they didn't think it would do well. In fact, my my executive producer didn't think it would do well at all. So they just tested it out at a station down in Miami in the middle of a Sunday afternoon, not in prime time, against the um, Miami Dolphins and Dan Marino, and nice day to walk on the beach. And I was even told that. The fact they were so, they were so underimpressed that they only had two uh, senior citizens that had little, looked like a little coffee table with two telephones to take pledges. There was no one in the studio. And I remember the, the, uh, the engineer said, uh, here's the script. And I said, I don't read script. I, I'm, I'm, everything's going to be extemporaneous. He said, okay. You got no one to pitch with. You're just yourself. I didn't even have a premium just to copy the show. And they wanted me to raise 500 bucks. I think we did a little better than that. I raised, I believe it was 136,000, broke all records in the history of the station. And then the guy came the next morning and says, good news, bad news. I said, what's the good news? He said, you broke all records and everybody once on. The bad news, you're not going back to New York. And I didn't. For weeks, I was on the road. And what I found, instead of doing just a pitch of the show, was I went over on my animal sanctuary, and at nighttime I started tape recording frogs and birds and then rainstorms hitting a tin roof just with a microphone, and and I put together all these natural sounds and then isolated the different birds, and I put that together, and that became... Then I put harp music in there and flute music. It became a very popular premium. Uh, and it was the sounds of nature. So I listened to it, uh, and I think, wow, that's terrific. You know, you can you want to chill out? Listen to the sound of rain on a tin roof. But get out into nature. Get out to these national parks and state parks. Get out to your city park. Penn State University says that living a stress-free life may be beneficial, but it also has a downside. And what I took away from this is that, yes, hyper-stress can create a surge in cortisol. That's bad. But you need a certain amount of stress in life, and even a good stress, what Han Say said was productive stress, which is things that excite you. You know, buying a new home, that's exciting. Paying for it can be uh, stressful. These can be excessively stressful. But but having a wonderful new relationship where you're experiencing someone, their mind, their emotions, all the wonderful things you find as people evolve and show you a different part of themselves each day, that's, there's stress in that, but it's a good stress. Going to a concert, that's a good stress. Being excited by a movie that's premiering and you, you want to see it, good stress. So there's good stresses and bad stresses. So what we want is we want more good stresses and more appropriate ways of dealing with bad stresses. My number one thing I tell people is stop personalizing everything in life. When you stop personalizing, just look at his information, then you don't overreact. Oh, and by the way, for all the college 
kids and even high school kids that are binge drinking, thinking it's just the coolest thing. Well, according to two different universities, uh, Kuopio University in Finland and University of Eastern Finland, they found that binge drinking when you're young is linked to changes in the cerebellum in youth, young adulthood. That can really play havoc, and that can stay with you as a negative for the rest of your life. And finally, New York University found that narcissism is driven more by insecurity and not necessarily by an inflated sense of self. That's the newest study from a team of psychological researchers. Because we like to think that narcissism is just someone who's got a grandiose personality and is always inflating their sense of self in every environment they can. Donald Trump would be a good example of that, for example. But it's more often someone who's grossly insecure. Now, having counseled tens of thousands of individuals, and once they start opening up and telling me about what they believe could have contributed to their state of health, insecurity almost always rises. Insecurity, the uh, uncertainty about choices they're making and the fear if they make the wrong choices in anything in life keeps them trapped into this resistant mode, always stuck. It's like having a lifetime constipation problem where everything is constricted and they're bound up. Well, that can manifest as narcissism in a lot of people. Remember, what a person dislikes about themselves, they'll generally always project upon others. And what they don't want you to know about them, because you might have a different impression if you saw the real person, they hide, they mask. They can mask it, but they can't change the energy of it. So all you have to do is use your intuition, and intuition is that great, great energy, honest detector, tells us the truth. And then when we look back at choices we made we shouldn't have, we think, were there red flags? Oh, yeah, there were red flags. Why didn't you pay attention to them? Well, they might not have had the hard facts, but their intuition gave them the truth. Pay attention to your intuition. We are 19 minutes into our program. We're going to take a break and come back, and I'm going to share with you at that time the important lesson to learn that you might be lied to on the safety and efficacy of vaccines in the United States. We'll share an original article. It'll be posted. It's been fully referenced. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. Thank you for listening. And most importantly, thank you for sharing the articles, the documentaries that we have. Can we trust America's COVID-19 vaccine injury statistics? According to the latest figures derived from the European Medicines Agency database of COVID-19 vaccine adverse reactions, 162,610 injuries occurred, 3,964 deaths have now been reported. Among the three major vaccines approved and deployed in Europe, Pfizer's vaccine accounts for over two-thirds of reported injuries and mortalities, or 102,100 uh, injuries and 2,540 events, respectively. Curiously, women disproportionately account for 77% of adverse events. This greater than one and a four gender ratio is also being observed 
for Moderna and AstraZeneca's vaccines. So far, these seem to be of of such question that nobody has actually got an answer of why there's a huge gender disparity. So women pay attention. You are at far greater risk of dying or being injured. Recently, we have been alerted that AstraZeneca's adenovirus vaccine is particularly worrisome. It has been less than two months since its administration in the European Union commenced. Already there have been over 54,000 injuries and 451 deaths registered just for that one vaccine. Consequently, many European nations, which are more committed to protecting their citizens than increasing pharmaceutical profits, have placed moratoriums on administering AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine. In the United Kingdom, over 114,000 adverse reactions from AstraZeneca's product or 4.6 reactions per thousand recipients have been reported. However, the European Union's vaccine injury statistics are disturbing for another reason. It seems very apparent in our review of government and institutional figures that the European Union has a far more robust and accurate or honest vaccine injury reporting system in place. Given that the United States started vaccinating adults against sars to before the European Union, we would expect to observe the number of reported adverse effects higher or at least proportionate. However, this is not the case. Since December 14, 2020, the CDC's Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VARIS, has only reported 44,000 adverse events and 2,050 deaths, a small fraction compared to Europe and where the average European citizen is generally healthier and far less uh, doses have been administered. Consider two other anomalies. According to Oxford University's Global COVID-19 Vaccine Tracker, as of March 27th, the U.S. has administered over 136 million doses, which accounts for about 25% of all COVID vaccines administered worldwide. On the other hand, the European Union nations have only administered 66 million doses, less than half compared to the United States. In addition, the U.S. vaccination rate is now approximately 41 per 100 Americans. European nations have individually vaccinated 17 per 100 citizens or less. Therefore, why is such an enormous discrepancy present of adverse vaccine reactions between the U.S. and European Union. The European Union is reporting a 0.2% adverse reaction rate, whereas the United States is claiming a 0.03%, almost a tenfold difference. Various studies have estimated that only about 1 in 10% of vaccine injuries are ever reported to America's VARIS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. In the past, the CDC has relied upon the conservative 10% estimate, which may account for the tenfold discrepancy in adverse COVID vaccine events in the United Kingdom or United States versus the European Union. A Harvard study, in collaboration with the Federal Agency for Healthcare Research, has estimated actual adverse events reporting may be as low as 1%. This is from Harvard study, quote, and the Federal Agency for Healthcare Research, quote, Adverse events from drugs and vaccines are common, but underreported. 
Although 25% of ambulatory patients experience an adverse drug event, less than 0.3% of all adverse drug events and 1% to 13% of serious events are reported to the Food and Drug Administration. Likewise, fewer than 1%, listen again, fewer than 1% of vaccine adverse events are reported, end quote. If we assume the European Medicine Agency statistics are relatively accurate, we would therefore expect that the actual number of U.S. adverse reactions would be in the neighborhood of 335,000 injuries and 8,100 deaths. What we are saying is something is very, very, very seriously amiss with this scenario. First, we can surely agree that COVID vaccines do not hold a personal vendetta against Europeans, nor does owning a European passport make one more susceptible to a serious vaccine reaction. Although anyone can report an adverse reaction to the virus system, very few Americans know it exists. The CDC notes that reporting vaccine injuries and deaths in the database is completely voluntary. Consequently, there is no requirement for your doctor, a nurse, a hospital, or anyone else to, who is in the business of administering vaccines to report an injury or death. In fact, many doctors and healthcare workers are largely ignorant about the vaccine adverse event reporting system's existence, as is the public. Because the virus is an extremely flawed passive surveillance system, it provides an extremely inaccurate picture for risks associated with every approved vaccine, let alone those against SARS-2 virus. The CDC's National Immunization Program has acknowledged various glaring limitations for over 25 years. Good. No, not good. Because not a single thing has fundamentally changed in mandating its use through the, throughout the medical establishment. As millions of Americans are rushing to get their shots, our health officials have been relying upon, quote, a patchwork of existing programs that they acknowledge are inadequate because of small sample size, missing critical data, or other problems, end quote. Anthony Fauci and his heads of our health agencies have known for many months that there is a problem. Yet what has been done about these, specifically the vaccines? However, they have been utterly negligent. According to a New York Times article, to put in place a robust monitoring system to record adverse vaccine reactions and to undertake appropriate analysis. Properly, the vaccine adverse event reporting system has served as a highly successful propaganda tool to mask and hide actual, real vaccine risks instead of a reliable monitoring system. Anyone can access the database and it is the most common resource for those who follow and report adverse vaccine reaction trends. And the system's figures have no more credibility for alerting vaccine risks than rubbing a magic lamp and hoping a genie will appear. Yet, the CDC also relies upon other monitoring sources, notably the Vaccine Safety Data Link, or the VSD, a database controlled in a collaboration between the CDC and, you guessed it, nine large managed healthcare organizations. In fact, the CDC states that it relies upon the VSD, quote, to evaluate vaccine safety issues, end quote. The Institute of Medicine ranks the VSD as the best resource for conducting necessary analysis on vaccine safety and contains the electronic records of over 9 million Americans. 
It is also relied upon for comparing the health status of vaccinated versus unvaccinated groups and for investigating long-term adverse vaccine risks. However, despite our tax dollars going towards the funding of this VSD, the database's content is inaccessible to you, to the public. Federal agencies have assured us its data remains the proprietary property of the private healthcare organizations to prevent it from being used by independent researchers and journalists. Well, that makes no sense. If we, the public, are responsible for allowing our data on vaccines into the vaccine safety data link, and nine major corporations or entities, including the CC, control it and keep it secret, then how could a good journalist or researcher, independent medical doctor, researcher, use it to better guide us? They can't. Given the CDC and the FDA's long history of secrecy and lack of transparency and its long public relations arm that infiltrates every mainstream media source, it's not surprising that we never hear public service announcements notifying viewers and readers that the CDC has a system in place to report any adverse effects from COVID vaccination. Now that the vaccines are being rolled in mass, we would expect our government to enforce due diligence to track vaccine injuries in the public interest. But we will never hear this information coming from the lips of the pharmaceutical media, shills such as, well, those in the mainstream media. Not even during flu seasons when the media follows its marching orders from federal health agencies to persuade the public to roll up their sleeves. In the meantime, the medical establishment gives lukewarm condolences towards those unfortunate who have become seriously ill or have died from the virus. But think of all the others. Fauci and his federal gang consistently tell us over the media waves who have been lucky enough to be vaccinated and can return to normal life. Just take these experimental vaccines, despite the shoddy evidence, to convince any objective reviewer that they prevent transmission or protect anyone from contracting the virus, nor were they tested to determine rates of hospitalizations, not even deaths. Yet the media makes every effort to assure us that we are all being given the best information science can provide. And sadly, all this science is preferentially cherry-picked to strengthen the false narrative to increase vaccination compliance. And since lockdowns, masks, social distancing, and quarantine remain in place, it is near impossible to conduct any vigorous scientific study to determine how much or how little these vaccines are contributing to the rise and fall of infectious rates. Is it vaccination or all the mandatory social restrictions that is the major contributing factor? The greatest enemy of knowledge, wrote the renowned historian Daniel Borstein, is not ignorance. It is the illusion of knowledge. Today, this illusion of authoritative knowledge pervades the medical establishment and brainwashes the sleeping media. In our opinion, it is becoming a dangerous collective mental disorder. The good news is that more and more scientists, researchers, and doctors within the towering medical citadel are exiting rapidly in order to publicly speak out against the litany of falsehoods, lies, and corruption spewed from the orifices of the CDC, the FDA, the World Health Organization, and Big Pharma. Now we're going to go directly in to one of these people coming to a place where he is about to speak truth, and he speaks it in a very informed way. This information you've not heard, this person you've not seen, we're presenting him 
on our program today for your enlightenment. Good afternoon, I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, and I'm an internist and cardiologist and professor of medicine at Texas A&M University School of Medicine. I'm on the Baylor-Dallas campus, uh, and I've been integrally involved in the response to COVID-19. Uh, now, um, the opinions I'll express are those of my own and not necessarily those of my institution. Um, I can tell you that in my field, I'm an academic doctor. I see patients, but I'm very involved in research. I'm an editor of two major journals. Uh, in my field, I'm the most published person in my field, which deals with the heart and the kidneys in the world in history. And when COVID-19 hit, I saw it as our medical Super Bowl. And there were going to be doctors like Dr. Urso coming out of wherever they worked to face the virus. And there were doctors in the hospital that just had to receive the virus. And then there were those who headed for the sidelines. And then there were those that were uh, detractors against the pandemic. And so as I started to survey the literature, um, I had patients with heart and lung disease who needed urgent treatment. And I refused to let an illness, which lasted for two weeks at home before they got sick enough to be hospitalized, I refused to let a patient languish at home with no treatment and then be hospitalized when it was too late. It was obvious. That was obvious in April that that was the case. So I used the best tools or drugs available at the time. And these are appropriately prescribed off-label. Remember, a label is an advertising label. A label isn't a scientific document. Sure, it's, there, there, it's an appropriately prescribed off-label use of conventional medicine to treat an illness. And I, uh, in May, I put together a team of doctors because the, the, the group that was facing the pandemic to the greatest degree was in Milan, Italy, so most of them were in the Coracle Italian Research Network. We summarized uh, all we knew about the available drugs. And we published our findings in the August uh, uh, 8th issue of the American Journal of Medicine. And the title of that paper was The Pathophysiologic Basis and Rationale for Early Ambulatory Treatment. And it had a premise. There's two bad outcomes to COVID-19, hospitalization and death. The second premise, if we don't do something before the hospitalization, we can never stop it. We can never stop it. And I have to tell you, when I, and I was the lead author in that paper, but we had dozens of authors from Italy, uh, India, UCLA, Emory. We had the best uh, institutions in the United States. I can tell you the interesting thing was there was 50,000 papers in the peer-reviewed literature on COVID. Not a single one told a doctor how to treat it. Not a single one. When does that happen? I was absolutely stunned. And when this paper was published in the American Journal of Medicine, it became a lightning rod. Oh my gosh, it became the most cited paper in basically all of medicine at that time. The world started, and, and boy, the world started knocking on my door. And I said, oh my Lord, I just can't believe what became untapped. And um, I had never been on social media before. Uh, and uh, my daughter, uh, who was home from law school, was talking to her about it. She said, well, why don't you make a YouTube video? So I made a YouTube video with four slides from the paper. This is a peer-reviewed paper published in one of the best medical journals in the world. Four slides. I even wore a tie and a suit, and she showed me how to record it in PowerPoint, and I posted it on YouTube. It went absolutely viral. And within about a week, YouTube said, you violated the terms of the, of the um, uh, community. And that's when Senator Johnson's office got involved in Washington and said, oh my gosh, this is important scientific information to help patients in the middle of this crisis, and social media is striking it down based on what authority. 
Well, one thing led to another, uh, and I became the lead witness for the U.S. Senate testimony of November 19, 2020. And the reason why there was Senate testimony is because there was a near total block on any information of treatment to patients, a near total block. And so what had happened over time is that we had gotten into a cycle in America uh, of no information on treatment. Patients actually think that the virus is untreatable. And so what happens is they go out to get a diagnosis. Now, I'm a COVID survivor. My wife in the galley is a COVID survivor. My father in a nursing home is a COVID survivor. You get handed a diagnostic test. It says, here, you're COVID positive. Go home. Is there any treatment? No. Is there any resources I can call? No. Any referral lines, hotlines? No. Any research hotlines? No. That's the standard of care in the United States. And if we go to any one of our testing centers today in, the, in Texas, I bet that's the standard of care. I bet that's the standard of care. No wonder we have had 45,000 deaths in Texas. The average person in Texas thinks there's no treatment. They honestly think there's no treatment. They don't even know about these EUA antibodies. You heard from a 90-year-old gentleman who got bamlanivimab. Terrific. Where's the focus? There's such a focus on the vaccine. Where's the focus on people sick right now? This committee ought to know where all these monoclonal antibodies are. They ought to know where all the treatment protocols are. They ought to have a list of the treatment centers in Texas that actually treat patients with COVID-19. So I led the initiative. The second paper was published in a dedicated issue of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. Now I had 57 authors, including Dr. Urso, Dr. Emmanuel, uh, uh, lead doctors in Houston, San Antonio, all over. And it was, it was another worldwide paper. And now we have it updated, integrated. So yes, we use drugs to affect viral replication. The antibodies are terrific. We can use intracellular anti-infectives in that box. Uh, we use corticosteroids and inflammatory drugs. The best anti-inflammatory drug is colchicine. You've probably never heard about it. In the largest, highest quality randomized trial, over 4,000 patients, double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial, there's a 50% reduction in mortality. No word of it. None. Complete block to anybody, colchicine. How can that be? How can that be? And then the most deadly part of the, the viral infection is thrombosis. So I have always treated my patients with something to treat the virus, something to treat the inflammation, and something to treat thrombosis, just as Dr. Urso had. And I have very, very sick patients, and I've lost two. But I have to tell you, what has gone on has been beyond belief. How many of you have turned on a local news station or a national cable news station and ever gotten an update on treatment at home? How many of you have ever gotten a single word about what to do when you get the hand of the diagnosis of COVID-19? No wonder. That is a complete and total failure at every level. Okay, let's take the White House. How come we didn't have a panel of doctors assigned to put all their efforts and stop these hospitalizations? Why don't we have doctors who actually treated patients get together in a group and every week give us an update? Why didn't we have that? Why didn't we have that at the state level? Zero. Why don't we have any reports about how many patients were treated and spared hospitalizations? From all the, I listened to six hours of testimony today. Zero. Zero. We have a complete and total blank spot on treatment. It is a blanking phenomenon. At least in the United States, there's some heroes. Now, the American Society of Physicians and Surgeons took the lead. They're the group. They've identified 35 treatment centers in Texas. They know who they are. They have emergency hotlines. 
Uh, they helped uh, Dr. Hall put together this uh, very brief pamphlet, but there's more an extensive one. We can pass it around to everyone that at least gives people half a chance to find out about information, okay? Uh, this is a complete and total travesty to have a fatal disease and not treat it. Now, the National Institutes of Health and the Infectious Disease Society of America started putting out guidelines on the treatment of COVID-19, and to this date, they nearly exclusively deal with a hospitalized patient. The two papers that I have published as the lead author and supported by wonderful people by Dr. Urso are the only publications in the peer-reviewed literature that tell doctors how to treat COVID-19 as an outpatient based on the support of scientific information, the only two. The Home Treatment Guide by the American Physicians and Surgeons is the only source of information available to patients on how to treat COVID-19 at home, the only source. So what can be done right here, right now? There's going to be more people that die in Texas, and it's an absolute tragedy. How about tomorrow? Let's have a law that says there's not a single result given out without a treatment guide and without a hotline of how to get into research. Let's put a staffer on this and find out all the research available in Texas, and let's not have a single person go home with, with a test result with their fatal diagnosis, sitting at home, going into two weeks of despair before they succumb to hospitalization and death. It is unimaginable in America that we can have such a complete and total blind spot. I blame the doctors for not stepping up. Where was the medical society stopping up and putting effort on this? How about from the federal and state agencies? There never was a single bit of group collaborative effort to stop the hospitalizations. Nobody even kind of thought about it. Bob Hall had me on a teleconference in, in April or May, and we're like, wait a minute. How come, where's UT Southwestern? I'm a graduate of UT Southwestern. Where's A&M? Where's the rest of the universities? How come we're not stopping this? How come we are not stopping this? But it gets worse because in the paper I published in December of, uh, of 2020, you know what he did? I had, I had a terrific uh, doctor from Brazil. We went through country by country by country and just asked the question, what are other countries doing? When was the last time you turned on the news and ever got a window to the outside world? When did you ever get an update about how the rest of the world is handling COVID? Never. What's happened in this pandemic is the world has closed in on us. There's only one doctor whose face is on TV now. One. Not a panel. Doctors, we always work in groups. We always have different opinions. There's not a single media doctor on TV who's ever treated a COVID patient. Not a single one. There's not a single person in the White House Task Force has ever treated a patient. Why don't we do something bold? Why don't we put together a panel of doctors that have actually treated outpatients with COVID-19 and get them together for a meeting? And why don't we exchange ideas? And why don't we say how we can finish the pandemic strongly? Isn't it amazing? Think about this. Think about the complete and total blind spot. So what happened, I can tell you what happened. What happened in around May, it became known that the virus was gonna be amenable to a vaccine. All efforts on treatment were dropped. The National Institutes of Health actually had a multi-drug program. They dropped it after 20 patients, said we can't find the patients the most disingenuous announcement of all time. And then warp speed went full tilt for vaccine development. And there was a silencing of any information on treatment. Any. Silencing. Scrubbed from Twitter, YouTube. Can't get papers published on this. You can't, we can't even get information out in our own medical literature on this. There's been a complete scrubbing. So this program has been one of try to reduce the spread of the virus and wait for a vaccine. And when we, va when we vaccinate, 
All efforts have to be on vaccination. And probably if I had four hours of vaccination on here. Think about it as we sit here today, the calculations in Texas on herd immunity. The calculations are we're at 80% herd immunity right now with no vaccine effect, 80%. And more people are developing COVID today. They're going to become immune. People who develop COVID have complete and durable immunity. And a very important principle, complete and durable. You can't beat natural immunity. You can't vaccinate on top of it and make it better. There's no scientific, clinical, or safety rationale for ever vaccinating a COVID-recovered patient. There's no rationale for ever testing a COVID-recovered patient. My wife and I are COVID-recovered. Why do we go through the testing outside? There's absolutely no rationale. I'd encourage this committee to actually look at what's being done and ask, is there any rationale? Is there any rationale for anything? L listen, there's plenty of COVID recovered patients. Let them forego the vaccine and let people who are clamoring for it get it. But at 80% herd immunity, in the vaccine trials, fewer than 1% in the vaccine and the placebo actually get COVID, fewer than 1%. The vaccine's going to have a 1% public health impact. That's what the data says. It's not going to save us. We're already 80% herd immune. If we're strategically targeted, we can actually close out the pandemic very well with the vaccine, but strategically targeted. People under 50 who fundamentally have no health risks, there's no scientific rationale for them to ever become vaccinated. There's no scientific rationale. One of the mistakes I heard today as a rationale for vaccination is asymptomatic spread, and I want you to be very clear about this. My opinion is there is a low degree, if any, of asymptomatic spread. Sick person gives it to sick person. And the Chinese have published a study, British Medical Journal, 11 million people. They try to find asymptomatic spread. You can't find it. And that's been you know, one of important pieces of misinformation. When Senator Hall called a conference call of what should we do in the Capitol when we reopened, I said, you know what? You know what we do at Baylor? You walk in and they zap your temperature. You got a temperature check and go in. I mean, do we test everybody who walks into the Baylor Hospital? No. Are they a lot sicker than everybody in this room? You better believe it. So why would we do something here at the Capitol that has absolutely positively no scientific rationale and then do it in this context? So my testimony as I sit here today is COVID-19 has always been a treatable illness. A very large study from McKinney, Texas, another one from New York City, show that when doctors treat patients early who are over age 50 with medical problems with a sequence multi-drug approach with the available drugs, uh, four to six drugs that are available uh, uh, to them, now the monoclonal antibodies are better, there's an 85% reduction in hospitalizations and death. 85%. 85%. I want you to remember that number, 85%. We have over 500,000 deaths in the United States. The preventable fraction could have been as high as 85% if our pandemic response would have been laser focused on the problem, the sick patient right in front of us. We were focused over here and focused over there and focused on masks and what have you. Laser focus, sick patient, treat them. We lost focus on the most fundamental so, thing. Dr. Uh, that's, my, that's my testimony. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Um, I, I can tell how passionate you are and certainly uh, have been a leader in talking about preventive uh, protocols and also the ambulatory stage. And I do think that that has been missing uh, and it, it's been a concern because COVID-19 is going to be with us, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, I hope we're at 80% herd immunity. I don't know yet. I'll, I'll read your papers, but um, 
I appreciate that, and the message is, is that there are drugs out there that work. Uh, there are therapies out there that work. But no single one works alone. And so the, the, the dismissive mistake was to do a very small study. Oh, we studied 200 patients, and we used ivermectin hydroxychloroquine, and it didn't work. That's like cancer and picking one drug and saying, oh, it doesn't reduce cancer mortality. We never do that in cancer. We never did that in AIDS. We don't do it in hepatitis C. What we look is for is signals of benefit and acceptable safety, and then we combine them. And that's, what, that's all we've done. So, but, but, but this independent declaration, drug by drug, that drugs don't work, has been, uh, and that's on, that's on us. That's been our medical house. That's been a, 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 a giant um, error that we've made on our side. We never should have expected single drugs to reduce mortality. But drugs in combination against a fatal viral infection, we and should have. This entire session is lesson, uh, learned from lessons. I know we're running. Okay, you heard his background. You heard his statements. Ivermectin hydroxychloroquine, and looking at all the studies, the studies were there. It was not by accident that the New York Times and other publications uh, tried to dismiss the relevance of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine and praise a drug that had yet to be developed, and when it was developed, it was worthless, or vaccines that were the answer, letting everyone just sit around and wait to get the vaccine or die. And then the vaccine was never, never, meant uh, never tested to prove that it would prevent you from being infected. And that's what most people believe when they take the vaccine. But here's a story in the United States you're not being told. This is from 100% uh, fed up. Can you remember a single time when a school was closed, not due to the virus, but due to the vaccine meant to prevent the side effects of a virus? Well, it's happening. Proof. Edwardsburg public schools. Quote, this is from WNDU. While most students and staff in Michigan are starting their week back at school, Edwardsburg public schools are not after several teachers saw reactions from their second dose of the COVID vaccine. Quote, it's been everything from nausea and vomiting to fever, fatigue, a little bit of everything, superintendent said. That's one example. Uh, and we didn't have enough substitutes uh, we had too few who had the symptoms. This is from Cloister uh, Elementary. This is from NBC Connecticut. Quote, uh, Colchester Elementary School was closed Monday because some teachers experienced some side effects after getting the COVID uh, coronavirus vaccine over the weekend, and there was a lack of substitute teachers to fill. This is from Grayson County Public Schools, WDBJ. Uh, Grayson County Public Schools closed Monday because several of its employees were still recovering from their second dose of the COVID vaccine. Quote, I was sick for about eight to 10 hours. I was very fortunate, but also that I've got two board members in their late 60s and early 70s, and they had nothing, end quote. Sandy Creek School, <clears throat> local SYR. Sandy Creek Central School District didn't have school on Thursday, but not because of too much snow. The district superintendent told Channel Nine, that several employees who received the COVID vaccine on Wednesday weren't able to come to work on Thursday. <clears throat> Farewell, school district, ABC News. As the school teachers and staff get vaccinated against COVID, school districts have had to adjust their schedules to account for any potential side effects from the vaccines themselves. For example, and then it goes into the example, Stark County School, uh, Idea Stream, 
Uh, it says that uh, this is in Navarra, Ohio, canceled class money because several staffers had reactions to the COVID-19 vaccine. Newark City Schools, the same. Shepherd Schools, the same. Ithaca Public Schools, the same. I've got a whole long list here, and that's just in the United States. And then I also have <clears throat> the uh, latest from Duke University Medical School. Individual SARS-CoV neutralizing antibody immunity lasts from days to decades. This is published in the Lancet Microbes. So the question is, if you do get a vaccine, and if there's an antibody created to any vaccine, how long does it last? And the answer is, nobody knows. Could be days in some cases. And what if you get natural immunity? How long does that last? It doesn't last indefinitely, only for a short period of time. But you would have to have anywhere from 80 to 97%. And even in those people who've been fully vaccinated, people come down with it. So there's a lot of legitimate questions about the efficacy of the herd mindset. But what we're not talking about is what happens to the innate immune system. On an upcoming program, I'll give you a whole classroom on the air about understanding your immune system, why the innate immune system, what you're born with, is different from the adaptive immune system, what you develop when you come into contact with a, a pathogen or you're injected with a vaccine. And you really have to know that staying healthy is the single most important thing you can do. By the way, Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, National Institute of Health, Surgeon General, none of them told you to get on a healthy diet, exercise, take your vitamin D, C, selenium, zinc, etc. We did. Once again, they've been wrong all along. We've been right all along. But politics and ideology prevent some people from wanting to know the truth because it challenges their belief system. We're out of time. Thank you all for listening and have a nice day.